Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 67th episode of the Truth Island podcast. Fear can be said as being the great preventer of us from doing a lot of things, quitting our job and doing something we love, standing up for what's right, even when it's unpopular, or even confronting someone close to us in life who needs to be confronted. Other of us fear extreme levels of poverty, social alienation, sickness, or even death itself. To date, there is no one on this earth that has conquered fear. But what if we could train ourselves to, well, the very least, stop worrying so much? We might find ourselves in a much better state of mind. Returning to the religion of Buddhism, all suffering is believed to stem back to desire. So perhaps in many respects, it is our desires to be liked, to be wealthy, and to be healthy that cause us to be in a state of never-ending fear. Joining me all the way from Colombia in South America, I am once again joined by Sam. Sam, are we destined to always remain in a state of fear? Or has Spirit Airlines brought you down the path of enlightenment? <laughs> Thank you, Spirit Airlines, for your, <laughs> for your affordable for your affordable airfare. <laughs> they enrich the spirit. That's why they got they, that name. <laughs> they, they do. I love it. They, they actually fly nine to nine different places in Colombia from the U.S. Wow. And, wow, and yeah, airfare is all really affordable. Um, it's great to be back on this podcast. Um, as you were opening, talking about fear and how sort of no one is um, immune from fear. No one who has uh, put on flesh and blood um, in the history of the human race has escaped fear. Um, you know, fear is the, the sort of the, the primal effect in the Garden of Eden when uh, there's a rupture between the relationship between God and humanity um, right there with Adam and Eve. And you see it. Um, I was recently reading um, in the book uh, of First Kings in the, uh, in the Bible, uh, the story of Elijah. And Elijah is kind of one of the top dogs in, in the Hebrew scriptures um, because he's so brave. And so much miraculous activity is centered on him and Elisha, his, his uh, meshuret, his assistant. Um, and there's actually an emendation, which is kind of like a textual variant in, in, um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew text, in 1 Kings 19, um, when Ahab reports to Jezebel all that Elijah has done. He has... Um, you know, gathered 400 prophets of Baal and Asherah on Mount Carmel. And he's arranged for this showdown between um, Hashem, uh, the Lord God, and between the gods of Baal and Asherah. And whoever can consume the sacrifice, um, that, that group's person is, is, is God, is the true God. And, and, and the story in 1 Kings 18 uh, ends with the people um, sort of, uttering under their breasts, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And, um, and, and the power of God is demonstrated that day. And the prophets of Baal, I'm not saying this is the right thing to do, are killed. <laughs> They're slaughtered. And, and Elijah runs. He runs because he knows ultimately that Ahab has more men and Jezebel um, hates him. And so when Ahab tells Jezebel everything that Elijah has done to, to oppose them and their cause, uh, Jezebel sends a messenger 
a, a, a Malak and, um, and tells Elijah that, um, Elijah, you are a dead man. You are a dead man walking. And she makes an oath, you know, as surely as those men died yesterday on Mount Carmel, I'm going to do more to you, to you and more also. And Jezebel, uh, you know, she sets her mind to destroy Elijah. And Elijah, the Bible says in three simple verbs, he, he like, he hears this and he is uh, afraid and he, he goes into the wilderness. And um, it's interesting that the word fear in that verse, a lot of people have struggled really to believe that that's what the Bible said, that Elijah, this great man of faith, kind of on the front lines of God's army for God's cause uh, among the people of Israel, that Elijah would be afraid. And so they actually, um, there are a lot of textual variants that would say that it, he, he saw because the word in Hebrew for to see is so similar to the word to fear. So if you just shift one consonant or one vowel, you can get the word, uh, the word see instead of fear. So kind of Elijah sees what's going on and he runs um, for his life. And the word is run, he runs. But I think that the true word in that text is that he is afraid. Elijah, the great man of God up there with Moses and David and Solomon and even characters later in the Bible in the New Testament, he, um, he is afraid. And it's hard for saints to believe that and to acknowledge that. But that's a common theme. And I love how the Bible doesn't pull any punches with their description of these heroes of the faith. They too were afraid. None of us escapes the, 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 the fear that is here. I absolutely believe that he was afraid because based, you know, also based on the conversation we had on a previous podcast about King David and his flaws, all of these prophets at the end of the day, they are humans and they are flawed. And I think the Bible doesn't try and present them as anything else because if we're trying to emulate something and live up to a certain standard, well, none of us is probably going to live up to perfection. But if you have a prophet that's flawed or you have a prophet that's fearful and has the, the full gamut of human emotions, well, that's something relatable. You know, that, that's like Jonah, you know, when he before he gets stuck in the whale, he's avoiding responsibility. Like all of these people have very human qualities and characteristics. And it's not, you know, they are born a certain way, but they become prophets by what it is that they overcome. That makes for a much better story and it makes for much more relatable characters. Now, thinking about, um, you know, the concept of fear, I, I, I will say this, and, and this is not going to help everybody who's listening. Obviously, having a strong faith in Hashem or in God probably helps with your courage quite quite a bit. Like if you feel like there's a, a powerful set of eyes or a powerful hand that's at play, um, that, that does boost up your courage. And that's not going to work for everybody um, because uh, not, not everyone is religious. So like that's only going to reach a select audience. What I will say for, for our friends that are atheists out there is I think if you don't have a strong confidence in God, the very least have a strong confidence in yourself. And I think that these prophets can also be walking examples of like, 
you know, I think when all of these prophets are standing up and doing all of these things, they're not thinking in the back of their head, well, gee, how's, how is that guy going to react to me? Is he no longer going to be my friend or is he, are they not going to invite me over for Passover next year, next year? Like they're not worried about any of these things. And I think if you're a God fearing person, you can kind of take some solace in God. If you're not, I think you can kind of take solace in yourself and say, I really love myself and I really love what I stand for. I don't really care what people think. And yes, I'm going to lose some friends and that's going to suck. It's going to be a form of social alienation. But I, I think that that courage really, I think that mindset produces more courage instead of fear. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would come back to my kind of two rules of emotional health, emotional maturity, um, which, you know, you don't have to be a believer to embrace. Um, you know, the first one is to know your story and I'll come back to that in a second, but the second one is to, um, understand and identify your own emotions. And that takes a lot of work, kind of internal work, whether, uh, you know, learning how to name your emotions, you kind of have to go back to the ABCs of what it means to be a human being. Um, you know, I found a lot of help from a guy named John Gottman, who's, um, a rabbi, but also, um, you know, a therapist and a counselor in Seattle. And he has a little book called What Am I Feeling? Um, it's for um, parents of young children. Actually, it's a really thin, but extremely informative book. Um, and it goes kind of through the four different operating systems that, um, that people have with regard to their emotions. One is um, dismissive. One is disapproving. One is laissez-faire. Anything goes. And the fourth one, which he recommends, is emotion coaching. That, that the most constructive way to deal with our emotions is to... Uh, to understand and identify them um, and to do that courageously. Um, and at the end of the book, he um, there's a little glossary of emotions, which is really for children, honestly, and it's for parents of young children to help help them name what they're feeling um, because that's just, uh, it just gives so much confidence to be able to do that. But I found so much help in that as a 33-year-old. I'm kind of maybe a late bloomer, kind of late developed on that area of emotional intelligence. But one of the emotions that we have to kind of courageously confront is the fear that we feel, the negative, so-called negative emotions of sadness and fear and anger. And that takes practice. Um, it takes intentionality. As a believer, sometimes that's the best gateway for me to prayer uh, or to meditation or the, to, to the contemplative life is to be able to um, under, to stop almost, to stop what I'm doing and to to name, yes, I am afraid. And it could be of any number of things. Uh, but that second rule is crucial for all of us to grow in emotional maturity. You know, absolutely, Sam. And I would say throughout my 20s, I kind of went with the uh, the robot type of mentality to handling my emotions. Like, well, this person's being very disrespectful for me, or I'm afraid of how they're going to judge me, but I'm a robot and I, I won't let that bother me. I'll just keep on smiling and just be. And I thought that was actually a form of self-mastery. I actually deluded myself into thinking, yeah, being a robot, that's that's self-mastery there. I'm a wise Jedi or something. But then I started, I started realizing that, no, the harder thing to do is to actually really pay attention to your emotions, evaluate them, embrace them for a while, and then start correcting your behavior based on your emotional reactions. So for example, 
if somebody is saying something that's really offensive to you or oppressing you or keeping you down, younger Aaron would go the robot way and be like, that is totally fine. I'm above this. I'm totally, ro robot doesn't feel an emotion. Robot, robot just, you know, and I'm like, well, okay, you, you're just fooling yourself because eventually that's going to manifest in some other kind of pernicious way. You're not going to sleep as well at night. And it's also going to prevent you from actually being who you are. And I'm starting to realize that sometimes having really difficult conversations with people and confronting people who are throwing hate or throwing shade in your direction is actually a part of who you are. And you'll notice, and, and taking this back even to the Bible, the prophets are very brazen in the way that they speak to not only their own people, but to oppressors as well, right? And they, they like, like I, I think that Moses didn't rationalize the situation and say, oh, well, Pharaoh's got some pyramids to, to build. Let's just, you know, let me just be a robot and play it cool or whatever. It's like, no, he's like, this is very upsetting. Uh, these guys are whipping us and they're mistreating us. And I think he had to be very, very, very in tune with his emotional sense of like, something's not right here and I'm not going to keep my mouth shut. I'm going to be courageous enough to deal with how I'm feeling and I'm going to tell my people this and I'm also going to confront the appropriate authority figures and get this off my chest. And I think that, as you said, that takes a high degree of an emotional maturity. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean that you're flipping off people left and right because they cut you off driving. But what it does mean is that when there are critical junctions in your life, you are having the courage to kind of do what is right. Yeah. And in that way, fear for Moses as the leader of Israel was motivating. I mean, Moses was afraid all the way right up to his commissioning um, in you know Exodus 3 and 4, when the burning bush story and when the Lord says, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, he's afraid. But, you know, for us, it's sometimes as simple as stopping for a second and, you know, you wake up and something's bugging you, you know, um, something's nagging you um, about something that someone did or said, uh, maybe someone close to you. And sometimes we have to just stop and think, why, why did that hurt so much? Or why did that comment sting like that? And I think that's what I'm talking about. We have to um, kind of assess ourselves, examine ourselves pretty constantly just to stay kind of in a place of tranquility and um, emotional intelligence. And, you know, I like the phrase, I picked this up from somewhere, um, how a comment or an action can trigger an emotional allergy for us. Um, it can make us feel a certain way of insecure or inadequate. And we don't know why, um, uh, but 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 doing that kind of emotional interior work is important for for growth, and it's something that we have to kind of do on our own. Um, I'm actually gonna um, restart, hopefully, uh, therapy uh, <laughs> remotely. I guess it's all remote right now, anyways. But uh, hopefully next week with a counselor that I saw in um, in seminary, you know, five years ago, and. Um, there's just some things in my life that make me realize, like, I think that's a good idea right now for me. But a lot of the time over the last few years without a counselor, and even when you have a counselor or a therapist, it can feel like that scene in No Country for Old Men where Javier Bardem gets shot in the leg and uh, he goes to a hotel room and he, with scissors, he cuts his pants off and he um, gets in the bathtub and he's got like a a mirror and tweezers and um, different kinds of medicine. And he has to basically extract the bullet himself. 
And it's kind of a, a gripping raw scene, but a lot of times we have to do that kind of emotional work ourselves and it's painful. It's like removing a bullet. Um, some, you know, ultimately we get help from people, whether that's friends or people that are close to us or a therapist. But a lot of this stuff is stuff we have to do on our own, ultimately a path that we have to walk ourselves and probably our whole life, our whole lives. So that's hard to prepare for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you've, you, it's interesting. I did a podcast on why uh, with my friend, Kenny, why we hate no country for old men, but now you've just made that movie that much more interesting with the analogy that you just, that you just used. So thank you, Sam. Um, so, so, but I, I like the analogy that you're pulling uh, the bullet out of your own leg, which is a really incredible thing. And speaking on therapy, one statistic that I, I've read, and this is really the most stark and most startling thing, is like some, some obscene number, maybe 50% of people quit therapy after the third or fourth session. Like the truth comes out, they're, they're like the therapist holds a mirror to who they really are and their real emotions, their fears, uh, their their anger towards other people and they're like oh my god i i hate i i hate my father or whatever you know like like people hear that truth they see it and it, and it's it's not the prettiest thing in the world and it's ugly and rather than confront what it is that they actually feel and who they actually have bitter feelings to or who they're afraid of and so forth they just run away from it they absolutely just run away from it and they choose I'm, I am I am the robot. I am Darth Vader. I am some some form. I am some you know like Android that doesn't feel or process any of these things. I am above emotions, and I'm like man, you're just you're just fooling yourself, and you're you're succumbing to your fear. You're succumbing more and more to your fear because you're 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 afraid, and you're not doing a lot of things in your life. You're not confronting people. You're not living your passion. You're not doing what it is that you really want to do. And because you're not confronting your own emotions, you don't know why it is like you, you, you have fear and you don't know where it comes from. You think that you just maybe saw a ghost in your closet, but no, it's not that there's a ghost living in your closet. It's because you have all of these repressed issues that you're not really addressing and it's preventing you from moving forward. And that's what most people don't do is they, in order to move forward from whatever childhood trauma or whatever it is that you've experienced, you have to confront these things. You know, um, again, I'm relying a lot on Star Wars today, but um, there's a scene in The Empire Strikes Back where Luke Skywalker goes into the, Yoda instructs him to go into this cave and he sees Darth Vader and he cuts him open. And what happens? He sees his own face. He sees his own face and he's forced to confront this fact that he's afraid that he himself might uh, conform or, or, or succumb to evil or something like that. And for him, that was his greatest fear. And we don't all have to go into caves in order to do this, but we do have to be very honest with ourselves. And yes, I think a licensed therapist is, is definitely a good guide through, through the caves of our subconscious. That is a great, great illusion. A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a great literary, literary slash cinematic reference. And I'm going to, I'm going to use that and I'll give you credit when I use it because it just, that's, that's a great, that's a great example. We're all afraid of becoming, um, Luke is afraid of becoming totally overtaken by the dark side, you know, yeah. and becoming, uh, becoming a, a, a servant of evil. And, um, I think that we're afraid of, you know, I, I fear, yeah, I fear becoming like some of my, my forebears. So I love that. Um, you know, and I started, I, I kind of officially started therapy right at the end of, 2013 for the first time. And I grew up with a lot of stigma personally around therapy uh, that you only went to therapy or counseling or, or that kind of thing. 
if you were really, really messed up. And so it was a big deal for me to, to finally bite the bullet and go. Um, it wasn't a mandatory for seminary training, but it was recommended. Um, it was expensive for me. Um, it was $95 a session. I got a $25 scholarship from the seminary, but I did it for a year and a half, um, 18 months. And I went every week and uh, this guy was, you know, licensed, certified counselor, therapist. And, um, you know, the first three or four weeks were, were they, they did spook me. You know, you, you mentioned people leave after three or four, they get spooked. They yes. get scared. You know, it feels like you're, um, for me, it felt like I was a traitor. Um, because I had to sort of uncover, pull some of the skeletons out of the closet, pull things that had been swept under the rug back out from under the rug. And um, I had to sort of go through the underwear drawer of my life. Um, it felt like it felt like being pantsed emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, this. I love I love the we're, we're really on the analogies this morning. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry if I'm going overboard, but yeah, I, I love um, it. But uh, it, it, it was it was tough, you know, and I, I felt like a traitor because you have to go you have to go kind of into the bad news before you can embrace the good news, which is that you can be healed and restored and kind of move forward and become more, a more whole and integrated person uh, through this this process, you know, the hard interior work. Um, but to do that, to get there, you kind of have to go through. It's not a scenic uh, tour. You have to kind of go through some some bad news first and kind of uncover some of the hard things of growing up and even the way you were hurt or mistreated or betrayed or the way you mistreated people or whatever, just hard stuff. And when it comes to family of origin stuff, you know, your mom and your dad and your siblings and your primary caregivers growing up, whatever, whoever they were, when you get into that stuff, you really feel like a traitor. You're like, these people brought me up. They cared for me. How dare I speak evil of them? And you know, you're kind of talking crap about them. And, um, but it's not for no reason. I just double negative that sentence, but you know, it's for a good cause and you have to hang in there and stay in there. And that's probably the biggest reason I wanted to quit was I initially, I felt like a traitor. Right. This is, this is, you're really touching upon something that's, that I'm actually finding having been doing the podcast now for a couple months now, is a lot of people are afraid of the truth. They, they, they are absolutely frightened of it. And people think that the truth is nothing but unicorns and fairy tales and, and just feel good vibes, you know, and it's actually, it's actually not that it, it, the truth is not is not there is, you know, there is some feel good stuff in there, but you have to confront a lot of monsters and a lot of dragons, ugly things about yourself, ugly things about people that you love, ugly things about people that are very, very close to you. And a lot of people are like, nope, 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 not up for that journey. All the people on Facebook love me and I'm never actually going to test them. You know, like there's always this idea that, okay, well, how do you know this person loves you? Or how do you know that they're truly your friend? Well, you have to test them in some way. You have to, you have to do something. You have to confront them. And I'm like, well, if this person really loves you and you confront them about something ugly that they may have done and they write you out of their life. Okay, well, what's better to know the truth about them or not to know the truth about them? And, and that's, that's why, you know, we, we have these ideas that the great truth tellers of our, of our generation 
Uh, and this goes back to Socrates, who, who we can basically say is the epitome of being a truth teller. What was what was he? What was his punishment? He was sentenced to death and forced to drink hemlock. So, like people are absolutely frightened, frightened of the truth. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that our civilization, I hope our society has, I, I think, I think now maybe, and then maybe, maybe coronavirus is like the, the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. But I, I think maybe just now people are starting to develop a little bit more of a tolerance and a bit more of an acceptance for it. And if we ever, as individuals, if we hope to move forward, we got to confront the truth. And, yeah, uh, and then on a larger scale as a society or as a civilization, if we wish to move forward, we got to confront the truth. And I, I, think, I think it's preventing us from moving forward. And that ultimately is going to lead to depression. Whatever prevents you from moving forward leads to depression. Yeah, agreed. I love the example of Socrates. I mean, you could pretty much say that Socrates was forced to drink the hemlock because he told the truth. Yes. Um, which is what you said, but just it's amazing to think about that and um, how people are silenced. Um, people were silenced, you know, around the the origins of the Second World War. And, uh, you know, the World Wars are both great examples of truth tellers being silenced and um, assassinated. And, um, you know, we love silence and denial. You know, I, I realized that when I was a pastor in small town, Iowa, you know, families that were outwardly very kind of looked like they had it all together, you know, a great family business, lots of money. Uh, they seemed like they were intact families and whole, um, but there were serious problems within the family. Mm. And rather than embrace, and this is something that's been true in my own family, I think I, I know there's family members that would disagree with me because we want to maintain the, the myth of cohesion. Um, I talk about, you know, in the Christian tradition, there's covenant theology, which is this emphasis on families and how we pass the, fam the, the faith from generation to generation. But with as much covenant theology as there is, there's also as much covenant mythology mm. um, that, that there's a lot more brokenness under the surface and a lot more brokenness than meets the eye. And we love to sweep that under the rug. We love to be in denial of it and we love to not speak of it. And, um, you know, and I know that it's uncomfortable to do those things. And I've had to uncover some hard things in my own life, um, ways that I've hurt people and ways that I've been hurt. And uh, I can talk about that more um, in a second if you want me to, but I just wanna affirm what you're saying that we are repellent to the truth. Mm, I, I wanna, talk about what you mentioned about the household unit. And one, one of the things that we have this myth in our head that a quiet household is a happy household. And yeah. as I as I get older, I realize that could not be further from the truth. I actually think that, okay, there's, there's obviously a degree of this. If people are throwing um, glass bottles at one another and, and hitting, you know, obviously there's an extreme to this, but I actually see that there's a lot more love in households that argue and again, when I say argue, I don't mean going for the jugular and, and using, you know, high levels of profanity and, and physical violence. Like, obviously, there is a point of extreme there. But I think that families that have the, the, the bravery to be like, no, sweetheart, I think you're going down the wrong road with this and actually have these very open and transparent conversations, you're going to find that there's a lot of love in those households because the, the love exists because there's trust there. 
There's a lot of trust in these households. And I, I think we've always, we, we, we have this, and maybe it comes from the media or maybe it just comes from our conventional wisdom that a household that is arguing is, is in disorder, right? And the only way that you can get rid of that disorder is everyone just kind of swallows what they feel and just kind of stomachs it and plays the part. They just play the part that they're supposed to. And I'm like, ultimately, that's that's a deck of cards that's going to collapse pretty darn quickly. You know, sooner or later, the deck of cards is going to collapse. So I think it's the households that are constantly um, arguing and constantly revising their their appraisal of one another and, and constantly evaluating what it is they're doing. I, again, I, I think of it akin to that computer that's constantly updating. Like we all get these annoying updates from Microsoft. They're really annoying, right? And they take a long time and your computer is like deactivated for three hours and you have to let it restart and go into safe mode and do whatever. But you're, you know, it's, it's trying, it's there to protect your machine and make it more powerful. And it's the same thing with these households. It's like, we have to kind of go through these three hour or four hour arguments because you're going to get, you're going to, the family unit or the household unit is going to be that much stronger if you go through that annoying system update than if you just avoid it. Totally. I uh, did quite a bit of premarital counseling when I was a pastor in small town Iowa. Um, and as I joked, I'm a, you know, I'm a single guy. I dated, you know, um, over the last several years, but, you know, never been married, still not married. And I joked like, uh, for premarital counseling, I was drawing on my vast experience as an unmarried person as I'm giving <laughs> you advice about how to be married. But I found that, you know, my best approach with premarital counseling, and I, I've married probably 15 different couples um, over the years. Um, and uh, I tried to do like three to five premarital counseling sessions with each of them. You know, one one style of doing that in the Christian world is to just kind of give the Bible spiel. You know, here's God's view of marriage. Here's what the Bible says about marriage. Here's what, um, basically just three to five sermons, basically. Mm. <laughs> um, that's one approach, right? But my approach, I took a much more um, kind of question and answer format with my people. Um, I really wanted to draw them out. I wanted them to hear themselves talk um, and answer questions and actually hear what they were saying and and even hear what um, their their partner was saying and kind of get to know themselves and each other. And then in a tertiary way, me as their, their officiant, you know, but one of the questions, and I found lots of different good sets of questions. One of them was a set of 13 questions from the New York, New York times, actually. Um, and one of the questions was, how do you deal with conflict? And you can look at any test, like there's a really common premarital test called prepare and rich. You have to pay for it and then have like a licensed, like proctor, facilitator proctor the the results or whatever but in any of these tests the question of conflict comes up and i think it's an important question you know did your parents throw plates and glass bottles or did they sweep everything under the rug or did they talk about things constructively and that's really important you know it's just the idea that when two people come together in you know a civil union or a marriage that they are not just coming together as individuals but they're coming together as you know, members of two different tribes or families, and they're going to bring in all of their expectations and patterns and rules that were spoken or unspoken um, at that time. Um, and one of them is the kind of the mode of operation that we inherit when it comes to conflict. How do we deal with conflict? How do we deal with the negative feelings that we have for each other? Um, how do we um, how do we deal with um, anything that kind of goes awry in the home and 
you know, I, I didn't really inherit a good kind of operating system when it comes to conflict. I'm really not pleased with my my MO when it comes to conflict and any relationship. I tend to to shut down. Um, I tend to I I actually tend towards silence and denial as well. And I'm ash- I'm kind of ashamed of that. I mean, I don't want to say ashamed. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with me, but I'm not I'm not comfortable with uh, the person I have become when it comes to conflict. And I would like to grow in that area. Occasionally I meet someone that it's, it's really easy to, um, to talk to them about, Hey, Aaron, I just want to say, I didn't like the way you said that last time we talked. How dare you, Sam? (laughs) Right. Right. How dare I? And, and, And that's, and that, and that brings it back to the theme of fear. I'm afraid of Aaron being like, you know, man, you just, you, you really overstepped, you really overstepped your boundary <laughs> there and you are never allowed on truth Island again. Um, and, think, and that's the, yeah, yeah I think, I think though that like that's, but that's the beauty and that's the test of a true friendship. And that's the truth. Yeah. That's that, that, that there's that trust there that we could speak offline on zoom or something. And you could just say, Hey, Aaron, listen. And uh, my, my friend Kenny says that when we talk to people, there's two types of truth. There's truth to hurt somebody, and then there's truth out of love. And I, I think that if you spoke to me offline on Zoom, like, hey, Aaron, just between you and I, here's how I really feel about this thing or whatever, then that's truth out of love. And that's actually a good test. Like, we have to test these relationships. We have to, you know, like, if you if you had someone next to you, you have to check their pulse. Just make sure that, that this relationship is going. And the way that you can do that is unloading some truth. That's how you yeah. know your friendship is alive. You're not dealing with, like, a Frankenstein or a corpse. Yeah. Right. Because if, if you're just living in lies and you're just living out, everything is wonderful. Everything's great. Oh, okay. Okay. You spent their life savings on that. Awesome, honey. I, you know, great, great, good, good move there. You know, that you're really just dating a corpse at this point and all of your relationships are corpse like in nature. So by, by bringing life, rejuvenating life into friendships and into relationships, we have to speak these truths. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, you're just a mortician of relationships, <laughs> a, re- a relational mortician. Yes. Uh, you're just a, a morgue attendant. No, I, I agree. And I think the reason I don't speak out and I know, you know, I know I have, this is an area that I need to grow in. Um, and it's partly discernment, knowing when and what and how to say things. Right. Um, that's, that's something I know I need to grow in as well. And I have grown, I have seen progress, but you know, some people just are, are naturally better at things. And this is something that I, I'm not super naturally good at. And I, I, I think it comes from fear, you know, a fear of rejection or disdain, people looking down on me or rejecting me in some way. I think it also comes from, um, you know, mistrust. And this is something I need to, to kind of dig into a little bit in my own story is just, why do I feel such mistrust for people? They don't deserve my mistrust. They haven't done anything to, to deserve my mistrust or distrust. Um, but, but I do, you know, on a deeper way. And I think, you know, there's a couple factors there for me. I think it was has something to do with my upbringing. I think some of these deeper issues pretty much always go back to family of origin and primary caregivers and our relationship with our parents or whatever, um, our immediate family. And that's something I need to tease out because I don't fully understand why I have such a hesitation to to trust people with what seems to me like flammable information, you know, like, hey, Aaron, you really hurt me. Um, why is that so hard for me to kind of commit myself to you in that way? 
or anyone. I'm just using you as an example because we're talking. But but yeah, that's so it's fear and 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 uh, a tradition of mistrust in my own life. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we all like, especially, you know, I'm a New Yorker, so I always have my guard up. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and like that, that's something that I think is important. And there's a lot of people in our lives who perhaps are not deserving of our trust or, you know, again, and I had this podcast with uh, Joe and we discussed that, like, you know, you shouldn't just make yourself like an open book to any stranger that you meet, you know, here or there, that's very dangerous. And we're not, you know, we're not, I'm not preaching to be naive and, and just making your yourself completely out there. And there are people in this world who are out um, there to hurt you or exploit you, or will use that information against you or however, I mean, being totally real right now, that is true. However, if you have people in your life that you're spending considerable amounts of time with, considerable, not just like, you know, uh, friend number 229 on Facebook, but like real friend that you speak to on a weekly basis or family members that call you all the time, this is where we get into some like, we need to be truthful right now. Otherwise, we don't really have all that much going for us right now. And one of the things I think I got this from Buddhism, I can't quite put my thumb on this, is what I always imagine in these situations is the worst possible scenario. That's what I actually do. And this is like, it's actually quite counterintuitive because all of our self-help girls say, oh, think of yourself as your best self. But I actually think of myself in the worst possible scenario. Like imagine I'm talking with this person and I unload some truth upon them. Okay. What's the worst case scenario? They, they delete my phone number. I never hear from them again. They disappear into the darkness of the universe. And then I really sit with that and I think about it for a while. Okay, this person's gone. I, you know, they don't answer my text messages anymore. I can never go to a diner with them again and, and, and talk with them. And I actually just sit with that reality and I sit with that like hypothetical for a while. And then I say to myself, it has to be this way. And why does it, why does it have to be that way? Because if we went to a diner, and we were just talking inauthentically about nonsense. Well, there's no real value that that's really being exchanged there. I'm just wasting time. I am just living a lie. I'm sitting in that diner and having an inauthentic conversation. And yes, the results are quite ugly that I will never ever get to see a movie with you again or, or, or whatever. But at the same time, it's like you sleep better at night and you sleep better you you you're more comfortable with yourself knowing okay i've lost this person forever however i found the truth and the truth is is just that much more valuable yeah yeah totally and it's not for me it's not just truth in the context of conflict which is key it's also just a general way of life i'm i find myself to be also very secretive sometimes um, I have been more secretive over the last year than ever, probably, because I. Um, well, we're gonna get uh, those know, secrets out of you, Sam. We're just gonna shake yeah. them out of you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, gonna, you're gonna grab me by the scruff of my neck and shake those secrets out. Whatever um, you say, Agent Bells. <laughs> <laughs> I have felt. I have felt very, uh, very, yeah, very Dick Tracy like in the last year. Uh, very uh, secret agent kind of, and. I don't like being secretive, but it's a, it's a protective measure. It's like, I'm trying to, it's a self-preserving measure because I feel threatened when people know things because I'm afraid that they're going to judge me for my decisions. You know, for, for example, um, I was tempted 
to not tell anyone that I came to South America. (laughs) 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 Because I was afraid, I was afraid that they would think my decision was frivolous or selfish. It's such dumb, dumb reasons, right? But I mean, it made sense at the time, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, that they would think like, why are you going to, uh, why are you going there and not there? Like, um, like they would look down on my decision or judge it in some way. And so I was tempted to just keep things secret, but I've sort of resolved again through some hard conversations, um, with people confronting me on my habits and patterns, which is great. And, 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 and it makes me want to kind of renege on what I said earlier in this podcast, which is that this all has to happen kind of a, it's a solo journey, like Javier Bardem in the hotel room, removing the bullet from your leg by yourself. I mean, ideally you have someone else there to help you remove that bullet. And I think that's the role of community, redemptive community in any context, um, believing or unbelieving context. Like we need the, the, the redempt, the power of a redemptive community in our lives. And so I'm thankful for the people lately, some of them gentle and gracious and some of them less so that have called me out on some of my patterns of mistrust and secrecy and unhealth and um, have pushed me to maybe live a little bit more openly and live in the, in the light a little bit more. Um, it's been hard. I, it's actually been kind of painful. And I, I really feel the the discrepancies in my own character, like I have a long ways to go. And this is not just me being puritanical Christian hard on myself, which probably is part of that too. But it's also me really sincerely wanting to grow. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, that that growth is coming. No, and thank you for sharing that. And there's actually, you actually just described something even far more dangerous than what what you like i actually when you said that like oh i'm afraid to tell people i'm gonna tell you one better sam there's actually people out there that'll never 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 get down to south america or visit Colombia or any place that they secretly want to visit because they're afraid of the judgments of others you know what i mean and 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 like you know like like so i think that there is like a stage i think the lowest stage you could be at is well, I'm so afraid of other people's judgment that I'm not even going to do that thing that I really want to do, right? And I think you're at a higher level if you do that thing you want to do in secret. I think that's actually a a step along the spectrum. And then you're at the highest form or the highest stage when you not only do that thing and then you tell everybody what it is that you're doing, not in a boastful, bragging, look at me kind of attention-seeking way, but you just, if someone asks you, hey, Sam, where are you? Hey, I'm down in Colombia, South America, and you say it with confidence and conviction, and you're you're basically like firmly rooted in your identity. Then there's something very liberating about that, and that's you being your highest self, highest self of like I'm down in South America because this is where I need to be right now, and you just say it with that kind of affirmation and that kind of firmness. Then that is you becoming who you were always meant to be. Yeah, and that is totally my goal. I aspire to the the profile that you just sketched, you know, of, of the person. Um, I aspire to that, you know, I aspire to live openly and in the light um, and to bring other people into what I'm doing. Um, not in a self-aggrandizing way. And I, I've never really been like a, sorry for this. You can delete this word if you need to from your podcast, but Insta slut, like I've never, that's not who I am. Like putting myself out there in like this, 
kind of both, you know, like look at me kind of way. Um, I'm not, I'm not judge. I, sh- I shouldn't even use that word. And I'm not judging people. I'm just saying that's not my tendency is to, I don't really want to promote myself. You talked about how you're having to learn how to promote yourself a little bit with your, um, your website right now. And, and that's kind of hard and uncomfortable. And I think it's same, same for me. I mean, I've been through a phase when I was in Iowa, I, I, I got my first smartphone the same time that I became a pastor. Um, I was a hardcore flip phone guy for eight years. Um, but, uh, I got a smartphone and I was like posting stuff on Facebook and, um, Instagram, and it became a great way of communicating with my congregation and just telling people what I was doing. Cause people mostly think that pastors only work one hour a week, um, on Sunday morning when they preach a sermon. Um, so I wanted them to know like, Hey, I was doing other stuff. <laughs> um, but I don't think the motivation there was, you know, to, to brag or, or anything like that. It was, and, and so I've kind of maybe I'm on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, I don't want anyone to know anything that I'm doing because I'm not confident in my own decisions. And that's something I've struggled with my whole life. Uh, just confidently, like last night I walked around Kaya 10, which is street, street 10 here in um, South Medellin. And there's all kinds of cool restaurants. And I was like afraid that I was going to choose um, the wrong one because, you know, like the, the, the chorus of my life, the congregation of my life is all looking over my shoulder somehow judging me on what I'm getting ready to judge me on my decision. Oh, you should have gone with that restaurant and not that restaurant or, or whatever. It's, it's just dumb. doesn't make sense. Um, but it becomes like a, it, it comes a, becomes a deep seated kind of way of operating in your mind and heart. And, and so I, I, I lack confidence, but I would like to develop the confidence and to make decisions and, and now to also bring people into my decision that I'm, I came here and yesterday or this morning, I sent a little update to like, eight or nine people, you know, that know I'm down here. And, you know, I, I think formerly I would have just shut people out and been like, this is my trip. And it, partly because I'm not confident to be here or partly because I'm a secretive person or don't trust people. I'm not going to tell them, but, but I want to bring people into what I'm doing and be confident in my decisions. Yes. Yes. And this really goes back to, I can't even take credit for this, but pretty much every successful or, you know, convent, like, we'll just go with society standard of success for a moment. Every successful person always says, well, there does come a point where you have to just overcome the fear of failure, right? And the, you know, when you fail, sometimes it's a very public failure. It's a very, you know, um, and I had this podcast talking with with Roger about like the stand-up comedian that bombs and, and really humiliates themselves. Like there's no tomorrow. And even when I'm thinking about my podcast or I'm thinking about marketing and all this other stuff, yes, there are times that I'm going to really, really, really bomb and I'm going to be humiliated. And there will, I will be, you know, walking around with some tomatoes and some mud in my face and it's going to be, it's going to sting. But I think that that's okay. I think that that ultimately is okay. And that's like critical feedback. Some of it is coming from a terrible place and some of it is coming from genuine great places and I can revise my like marketing strategy and revise things that I do on the show based on good constructive feedback. But I think the danger is if, if you are looking at your computer and you're saying, 
oh my God, I can't post this. Like people are going to judge me. They're going to think I'm a, you know, an attention whore or any of this other stuff. And you yeah. don't end up doing the things that you're passionate about or let it, or, or promoting yourself. Well, now you have to live with the fear of regret for the rest of your life of like, well, if, if only I was just a little bit more braver and, 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 and just did that, you know? So I, I think that that fear for me at this point, at this juncture in my life is far worse than a few people on Facebook being like, I've had enough of this guy, unfollow. Like, I'm actually okay, because I actually thought about this worst possible scenario, okay? Let's say I post a lot of stuff on Facebook and people don't like it. What is the worst possible scenario? They unfriend me, they unfollow me, they get rid of me. And I'm like, chances are you're probably just friend 259. We haven't talked in like 13 years or whatever it, you know, like, I'm like, sorry to see you go, but you know what, Sam? I guarantee you that when friend 239 leaves, there's going to be that much more other people that are going to discover you and they're going to become your friends. And they're probably going to be a lot more authentically connected to you for what yeah. it is that you're doing. It's, it's like, it's like, if you don't take that chance, right. And sometimes, sometimes we just need to shut off the old and kind of bring in the new in a way. And I'm not saying that the old, are, are there's anything wrong with them or something, but they're like, the old might just be saying, okay, Aaron seems to be going on this other journey over here. I don't want to be a part of that journey. Let me get off this, this, this plane and go somewhere else. And I'm like, God bless you. Unfollow me. I don't wish you harm. I don't wish you anything, no. any, no bad intentions. Good luck on your spiritual journey. And, but I need to go on my journey. And I'm, I'm going to lose passengers along the way, but we're also going to make some stops and pick up some new passengers as well. I love that Facebook example. I think that's excellent. And, and it goes back to what you said uh, before the podcast today, when we were talking about how, you know, the, the, the kind of the four primal fears of humanity are fear of poverty, fear of social alienation, fear of um, sickness, and then fear of death and how these things uh, bind us and, and uh, motivate us uh, in negative ways, um, fears of those things. And I, I think that this, this Facebook example is great because that kind of hits on the social alienation fear, but it reminds us just to put things into perspective, you know, yeah. um, and that to not let fear of social alienation rule us or keep us from living authentically. And I just want to say one more thing, kind of in reference to what you just said, which is talking about big failures versus small failures. You know, what you said reminded me of something I heard from a professor in seminary, which I think is, I think it should be just kind of a rule of, of spiritual and emotional growth, which is that trial and error is not, is not your enemy. It is your friend. Um, <laughs> and, uh, or they're, you know, two friends, I guess. And, you know, from a, from a Christian perspective, you could say that God's uh, Hashem or God's favorite way of teaching people wisdom this uh, this Hebrew idea of skill and the art of godly living um, goes back to Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Um, God, one of God's favorite ways of the universe's favorite ways of teaching us discernment and wisdom and perseverance and character is through trial and error, is through us yes. failing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Sam. We have like failure is a part of life. It absolutely is. 
And I'll tell you, like, I am, I am not a math guy, Sam, but when you're learning like about polynomials, how do you, how you have to factor. And the only way that you can factor is by trial and error, you know? And it's like, it's like, it's built into our, our system. Like failure is absolutely built into our system. Again, I, this, this example has been used like a thousand times and I'll be the thousand and first person. Edison and the light bulb. It took like 300 or 200 or whatever it was light bulbs that just would not turn on until that one light bulb, uh, you know, did in fact turn on. Like, I think that, I think that everything that we do is going to have a lot and a lot and a lot of failure. Um, I, I've even spoken to people in marketing who do cold calling and they're like, you know, the first, the first like 10 phone calls are absolutely terrifying. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm disturbing this lawyer. I'm disturbing this doctor at, at their work. But then after a while, like rejection just becomes nothing. It just, it's like, oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. And that's the whole thing. It's only when you live and, and it, it, it like, like, you know, I was just in a meetup yesterday and we just, we, we kind of went over the fact that in Buddhism, life is suffering. It absolutely is. And when you realize that, an extension of suffering is failure and you just keep on failing. You keep embarrassing yourself over and over and over again. It has less of an effect with every embarrassment that you make your shame. And when I say shame, there are things in life that you should legitimately be ashamed of. Like, right. That there are things in life that, that, that are, are just cause for shame. But I think in general, when you're believing yourself and, and marketing yourself or, or, or taking positive steps and you do screw up and you do embarrass yourself, with every embarrassment along that journey, your your shame disappears and your embarrassment threshold becomes that much more stronger. And that's how you know that you're really starting to, to walk the path of success. Totally. I agree with that. And uh, that idea of failure um, is, uh, is hard. Um, and I, I think that it's what I, I, I agree with you that you shouldn't have to intentionally try to there's things that you should genuinely just avoid in general but i don't think that we have to let fear of failure ruin us and and i don't think we have to let the regret of it rule us either um you know when i think back in the last decade in my 20s you know there's things that i i wish i had done differently um that had gone differently for me and uh, paths that i wish i had chosen instead and and i think there i can feel some general genuine lament for that but i don't have to I don't have to let that regret rule me either because that I'm heading in the right direction. Yes. Yes. And I kind of just want to leave off on this one last idea. And it's this idea of don't, and this applies to me as well. Don't let a decade of your life pass you by because you were afraid of posting something on Facebook. I, I think, I think, I think, I think that is the ultimate lesson of our generation is that believe me as much criticism or as much hate or whatever you believe is going to happen. Honestly, Sam, most people just don't respond. That's what I find to be, no. to be the default behavior of people, but don't let a decade of your life pass you by because you're afraid of how other people will react. It's never no. as bad as you ima imagine most people just don't really even care all that much about you. And it just, nothing, nothing really ever comes of it. Uh, Sam, thank you so much for being on the show today, my friend. You're welcome. Thank you, Aaron. This concludes the 67th episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.